Thanks for joining us at Faith. We hope the message you're about to hear encourages your day and draws you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to join us for service or find out more about the church, visit faith.church. That's faith.church. Good morning again. Hey, I'm so grateful to be a part of this church. I'm, I love you guys. I'm so grateful for what God's doing in our midst. And so we want to continue to follow him. Super excited about the series we are in, which is the year of the Bible. And let me just give you just a little bit of um, kind of how things are going to, to, to lay out and work as we lean into this. Um, I haven't told you this yet. We were just securing a couple more things, but we have partnered with um, an organization called the Bible Project. And so we partnered with them and us as we go through the Bible in a year for us to partner with them. And they create content and media that, that explains things of the Word of God in such powerful ways. I've engaged with it myself in my life. And so we partnered with them, and they are a tremendous organization that uh, they've never done this before with a church. And so we are going to, to partner with them, and part of our devotions that are going to be starting, now let, catch this, they're going to be starting in March. And so we're going to start a year starting in March, from March to March, one year in the Bible. Why not start now? Well, I want to give us some time to understand, so as we come to Scriptures in March, as we come to them, as we feed on them every day in your family, as we all are, are reading the, the same thing, everything's going to ramp up to a Sunday. And that Sunday, there are 50 major events within Scripture that I'm going to preach through those the, the year of 2022 and the beginning of 2023 as we wrap it up. But here's, here's the beautiful thing about all of this is every day there's going to be a devotion that's going to be published on version, And so we'll give you all the details about that. It's going to be a tremendous powerful, wonderful time as we engage with the Word of God. Now, I want to lead up to the beginning of March with you understanding that you can have confidence that the Word of God is actually the Word of God. Amen? And it's important that, that you, you know that. It's important that you understand that. Because we can say, yes, I, I read the Bible, but why the Bible? Have you ever wondered that? Some of the critical minds would say yes. I've wondered that in my journey with God. Why the Bible? Why not another book? Why not another teaching? Why is the Bible actually we call the Word of God, which is an incredible claim? Now, if you were to go to university and you were to, to have a discussion about why you think the Bible is the Word of God, they would laugh in your face. And so why do you think the Word of God is the Word of God? And I know there are things of faith that we need to trust. There are things of faith that transforms our lives. Yes, we know that. But there are also some practical things, and I, I want you to catch them today. If I was to ask you, why do you build your life or believe in the Bible? And if your answer was, well, it's, it's because that's what I was taught. Friends, that's great. But you need more than that. If I was to ask you, why do you base your life on the Bible? You said, well, I grew up in church or my parents said it was true. What that means is you're basing your truth on someone else's truth instead of you knowing why the truth is the truth. Why is the Bible credible? Why is the Bible reliable? Why can you anchor your life to it? Why do the promises inside of it actually mean something? Why is it when you engage with it, something supernatural happens every time? 
Why not build your life on the, on the Quran? Why not build your life on the Book of Mormon or on the teachings of Joseph Smith? Why not teach your life on other weird things? <laughs> so if I was to ask you the question, why the Bible? And if I was to say this, you can't say because it changed my life, nor can you give examples of how it changed other people's lives. Why the Bible? Listen, if we're going to spend a year being transformed by the Bible, we need to know why is it credible? Why is it legit? Why can we have confidence in what we've based our life on? That's a big question. And if we can't answer it, we should probably find another book. So can you trust it? Out of all of the books, why this one? So today, because we went a little long in worship, I'm not going to cover all of my points. But today, I want to cover, cover a couple things. This isn't for the purpose of defending the scriptures. This is for you and for me so that as we engage with them, that we can be anchored deeper in our confidence of the truth of the word of God. Listen, I'm, I'm not interested in, in proving other people or proving to other people that the word is true. Plus, when you think about it, and I know some people like doing that, that's just not me. For me, it's a little silly to think that if the word of God is the word of God, it needs me to defend it. It's like a one-year-old feeling like they need to protect and defend their father from another one-year-old. It's a nice thought, it's sweet, but dad's gonna be all right. Dad can handle this one. The word of God is a beast. Charles Spurgeon said this, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. So this is about you being confident on why this is true. If it's true, then we better, we better, we better live our lives under submission to it. If it's false, then come on, let's, let's, go, let's go fishing. Now, I know we're called to defend the gospel. Yes, we're called to defend that Jesus did raise from the, from the dead. But if I base my authority off of the Bible to a, to a person who doesn't believe in the Bible... There's, it's a, there's a disconnect. So we defend the gospel. We defend what Jesus has done in my life. We defend how he, how he has changed our lives. But when it comes to the word of God, we need to know as we engage with it, we can anchor our life on it. All these little nuances, yes, but that's, that meant this or this means that. Listen, we are living in, a, in, a, in an epidemic of Bible poverty within our own churches People are basing their lives on Christianity without the Bible as their source of how they live their lives. And then that, what they, that which they don't like in the Bible, they change it. Depending on what, whatever preference they are, they change the word of God to fit them. 
but they appease their conscience by still saying, I'm following Jesus, and I'm following the Bible. And then they say, but that doesn't mean that. That meant that and only means this, and that's really not what it meant, and that was this context, and they just make stuff up. So why is the Bible more credible than the Quran? Why is the Bible more credible than the writings of Confucius or Joseph Smith? Why is the, why is the, the, the Bible in which we believers, Christians have today more credible than the beliefs of Judaism? Why is the Bible more credible than the writings of Karl Marx? Why is the Bible more worth trusting, worth believing, worth reading, worth obeying? This is what we got to know. So I want to lean into this today. And if you've been around or ever studied any apologetics whatsoever, a lot of the content I'm taking today is from Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, as well as A Ready Defense, but as well as many other sources. F.F. Bruce, lots of sources. So I'm not going to cover all of this, but I do want to prepare you. So how can you have confidence in the Bible? Because I want to give you a couple things today. Number one, it is unique to all other books. It's unique to all other books. Oxford Dictionary says unique means as being the only one of its kind unlike anything else. When you look at all the other books of all the other religions that they base their life on, I want you to catch this. You'll find that most of them are written by one person with no other witnesses about what happened. How convenient. An angel appeared to me and told me this, and therefore that's why I can do this. And then people are like, okay, do you tell anybody else? Nope, just me. That would not be credible. Some of, the, some of the, the books and religions that base their whole life on a writing, that some have, some have a few different writers, but it's mostly it's one person. But I want you to just listen regarding the Bible and how unlikely it is that we even have it today. The Bible was written by 40 different authors from very different walks of life, from leaders of nations to peasants in the field to fishermen from statesmen to scholars to herdsmen to military generals. So just types of people, 40 different authors written over a period, over a period of 1,600 years in different environments, different locations, from the desert to the dungeon, from Paul inside of prison walls, Luke while traveling, John stranded on an island, written in times of war, times of peace, times of political unrest, times of variant of, um, of morality. And it's one book though, it's one book, we call it the Bible, but it's composed or collect, there's a collection of 66 books or 66 volumes. And the Bible that we have today was written over three languages Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, written on, listen to this, three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. 
And in that seemingly chaotic, wild environment from people who never met each other, every author writes in harmony with one another from Genesis to Revelation. And they are inspired by God himself and they are inspired by the Holy Spirit and every one of them expresses the heartbeat of God. And that heartbeat is that God is paving a way to redeem and save broken humanity. From Genesis, there was a paradise that was lost, but in Revelation, there was a paradise that is regained. They are in perfect harmony. It is impossible with man, but with God, it is possible. No other book has this type of unifying harmony. It's remarkable. When you read it from the beginning to the end, you get this amazing singular thought and it never contradicts itself. Those who say, yeah, but it contradicts, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And here's the beautiful thing. From Genesis to Revelation, everything ultimately points to Jesus. It's the beauty of the Word of God. So in, in the book that we're going to engage our life in, we're getting a powerful story how Jesus is restoring all things back to our Father. From the very beginning to the very end, from people from all over the world who will never meet each other until heaven. The Holy Spirit wrote one story. You can have confidence in the word of God. In these words, you can find God's hope for your life. God went out of his way to preserve it and to, re and to keep it and for us to have it today so we can understand who he is across multiple generations. It's God's story who was our creator who made us in his image and he offers himself to save his creation who needed saving because we turned his back, our backs on him. And that story is for you, it's for me, and it's for the whole world. The second reason you can have confidence in the word of God is number two, proofs of manuscripts. Meaning how do we know the Bible hasn't changed over 1600 years? So think through a few things today. All of the original texts of the Old and New Testament were written by hand on parchment paper. So, for instance, when Paul wrote to different churches, it was, a, it, it was an original letter written on one of these parchment papers. It would have, it would have made up a, st a stack of them, and it would have went to different churches, and they would have kept them. Many of them were circular letters. They would go to this place, then they would go and go to that place, then go to that place, and they would read it. So as you can imagine, though, those parchment papers over time would begin to degrade. So what they would do is then they would take these manuscripts and then they would copy them word for word to another one. So to preserve it, to preserve the words. So in other words, when you, you, can, you can gauge the reliability of a current text by by what was the earliest or the, or the closest translation, excuse me, the closest copy that was hand copied? What was the closest to where we are today? So it's a great question. 
How do we know? How do we know it's remained the same? How do we know? Well, when you have multiple, multiple, multiple copies and you compare them over all of them and they all line up perfectly, you would say that's pretty reliable. Now, let me compare it to a, um, a work that we would have in our universities of a, an ancient type of a book. So there's a book called the Iliad, which is written by Homer. It was written in 800 BC. We don't have a copy of the Iliad from 800 BC. So the earliest copy we have is from 100 AD. So 900 years from the original work. That's the earliest copy we have. And most scholar, scholars would call the work of Homer, of the Iliad, a, a great literary work. They would. You would hear it in universities. Yet no one in any classroom that you would sit in is going to question the accuracy of the book. You're not going to hear a five-minute disclaimer on how it's probably not true and probably been added to and, and it's unreliable and it's, it's probably really totally different than how they originally was written. You wouldn't hear that. And the, the Iliad is one of the anchors of, of, uh, of really literature in our universities. And people study it even though there is a 900-year gap between the original copy and, and its work today. So there are 643 of those ancient copies, okay? I know you might be like, I don't understand. Just hang tight. You'll get it. New Testament documents are better preserved and more numerous than any other ancient writings because they're so numerous, you can cross-check them for accuracy. They are very consistent. So here comes the kicker. So the amount of early manuscripts, so you had a 643 of the Iliad, the amount of early manuscripts that are still in existence, there's over 5,000 just in Greek. And after they cross-check all of them, over 5,000 manuscripts, the New Testament documents are about 99.5% the text match and are pure. In addition, there's over 19,000 copies in the Syriac or the Latin or the Coptic and the Aramaic languages. The total New Testament manuscripts, there's over 24,000 of them. And they all, as you match them, are 99.5% accurate from the earliest manuscript to today. That's remarkable. You should, you should have confidence. So every time they discover a new manuscript, which they still are, every time they, they find an, a new document or an ancient writing of the New Testament, it confirms all the other manuscripts that when it, when it, when it compares, it confirms that it's true. It's actually unbelievable. The third thing that I want you to have confidence in, one, you can have confidence that, that this, this text hasn't changed. Everybody say amen to that. The third thing is the mathematical probability of the messianic prophecies fulfilled in Jesus or by Jesus. Now, this is so fun. I know this is a little different message today, but I, it's important that you understand that you can have confidence. But before I get, get to these numbers, Jesus said this in Luke 24, 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them that was said, excuse me, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
So Jesus is talking to religious leaders who are looking at what we would call the Old Testament. They're looking at the prophecies. And Jesus says, hey, um, with Moses and all the prophets, everything in there is pointing to me. John 5, 46, Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you will believe me. For he wrote about who? Me. So what does that mean? The Bible really set itself up to fail. It's an interesting approach. But God knew what he was doing. There were two things in Scripture. The first thing that you see are statements called prophecies. And they're, and they're things to come. They're promises to come. And the prophets of the Old Testament would prophesy of what God was going to do in, in the future to save the world. And speaking of the Messiah that's going to come and save the world. And they were really detailed. Some areas were a little vague. Some were more details. There were more details. So the reason why you needed all those details and all of those prophecies is so that someone can't show up one day and say, hey, you know that one prophecy? Hey, here I am. I'm the Messiah. Though people tried. When they started to compare, they said, no, you don't fulfill this one or this one or this one or this one. Sorry, you're not the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, there's 351 prophecies that needed to be fulfilled by the Messiah. Now, some of them will be fulfilled at his second coming. But Jesus fulfilled 324 of those prophecies. The rest are yet to be fulfilled by his second coming. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus... The one whom this book points to has checked every box that needed to be checked to be the Messiah. Professor Peter Stoner, he was a chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy, which is a, a board that I'll never be asked to sit on, but anyway, at Pasadena City College and chairman of the Science Division at Westmont College, and his book, Science Speaks, Professor Stoner outlines the mathematical probability of one person in the first century fulfilling just eight, just eight of the clear, straightforward messianic prophecies. In other words, just eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, which he fulfilled 324 of them, just eight. What would be the probability of a person being able to do that by, and, and not actually being able to control where you're born, not being able to control other people's behavior, not being able to control what happens to kings while you're, while you're alive? And so eight, the eight prophecies that Professor Stoner looked at was Micah 5.2, John the Baptist, excuse me, Micah 5.2 was just born in Bethlehem, so the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. John the Baptist would prepare the way, Malachi 3.1. Jesus would ride on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. Jesus would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and that money would be used to go buy a potter's field, Zechariah 11.13. Jesus would make no defense during his trial, Isaiah 53.7. Jesus would be crucified, and his robe would be divided, Psalm 22. These were prophecies made hundreds of years ago. Hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. And so the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of these 324 prophecies, the math came to these odds. It's 
1 and 10 to the 17th power. In other words, 1 and a 10 with 17 zeros after it. To fulfill 48 of these prophecies, it is it'd be one chance and with a, the number 10 with 157 zeros after it. You thought your Powerball odds were bad. <laughs> and then, so to understand, then to give us a picture, because I don't, I, I don't understand 157 zeros. Like, I, okay. It's kind of like a national, a national debt. Like, I, well, how many zeros? I don't know. It's too much. But this is, this is what he says to help us understand it. And I'm sure you, maybe you've heard this before, but I want to remind you as we come to the Word of God and make a commitment to anchor our life to it over this next year. Just Jesus fulfilling just eight of the hundreds of prophecies would be like covering the state of Texas in silver dollars, two feet deep, making, marking one of them, then you parachuting wherever you want to in, and you find that silver dollar that someone else marked on the first try. That's crazy. That's the probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the 324 messianic prophecies that he fulfilled. Friends, you can have confidence in this word of God. It's not just another book. It's not just a great idea. It's not just something that's made up. It's the word of God. And the greatest gift we could do to our family is teach them that it is so. The greatest gift you could do for your family is to know the why and engage with them. Greatest gift you could give to yourself is engage with this word of God. Come to it with confidence. It's the voice of God waiting to speak to you, waiting to change you, waiting to transform you. It just takes a step of faith to engage with it. We should have deep confidence. And I'll close with this. The last thing that you can have confidence in the Bible is the archaeological proofs. Now, this is, this is tremendous. You would think that because of all the people and all the different places and all the different events, that you would think that they would have gotten something wrong in the Bible. A wrong name, wrong city, something, right? And it's, it's actually, this is a common argument that the book is full of errors or the Bible's full of errors. And there's places that never really existed and people that never really existed. And it's a, it's a, it's a mashup of, of mythology and, and Judaism and all kinds of interesting, weird things. And that's what they say, but they say that so they could discredit it so that it would not hold any authority. But the reality is history, even though, even though some would say history hasn't verified the word of God, I want you to know it's actually the opposite. There are some things that, have, that are in Scripture that have not been verified yet. I will, I'll, I'll say that to you, and that's okay. I'm not, I'm not concerned about that whatsoever. It hasn't been verified. It hasn't been debunked. It just hasn't been verified. But there was 
what, actually, what I love is discoveries are made every year. So one, if you want to know if the Old Testament is true, just, just catch a plane to Tel Aviv. And you'll show up and you'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. And you'll see it with your own eyes as they continue to uncover. But every year, they, are, they make more discoveries that don't disapprove or disprove the accuracy of the Scriptures. It actually confirms how accurate it actually is. But in the 1900s, Sir William Ramsey set out as an atheist, atheist archaeologist to disprove Scripture. So he went to Asia Minor, where the New Testament church, is a lot of it is written about. And where it talks about in the book of Acts, where Paul went as a missionary. And so Sir William Ramsey's, he looked at the book of Acts and he saw these specific references of people, locations, um, different, different events that happened, cities and islands. And he thought, I'm going to go to Asia Minor and I'm going to dig around. I'm going to disprove that these places even existed because he thought it was just a big myth. I'm going to discredit all of it. So he set off, he began to do his work. He was a brilliant guy. And he began to, to do research with his team and dig. And he ran into a problem because everywhere he dug, it didn't discredit the Bible. It actually proved the Bible was accurate and was true. So he did the next thing that any intellectual person would do in his position. He put his faith in Jesus Christ and gave his, gave his life to Jesus. Ramsey concluded the Luke, which is the writer of Acts, he says that Luke is a historian on the first rank. Not merely are his statements, in fact, true and trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. This, this thing happens year after year after year. Every discovery that they want to find to, to disprove the word of God actually anchors it even further into it is true. There was always this argument that the... Uh, they haven't found a city with the, the Hittites attached to it. So they said, well, that's just a made up people group. Well, again, in the 1900s, they were digging around in Turkey and they found the Hittite capital and all the records of the Hittite civilization with records also that mentioned this city that people have called a myth for years, Sodom and Gomorrah. So in the 1900s, excuse me, 1990, doing construction in Israel, they, they discovered a cave. And when they broke into the cave, they found something that's very interest, interesting. There were these, these things called ossuaries, which are like the stone boxes, and they, they bury people, and they put their bones in. Well, one of, the, one of the struggles is that they had not found the name of Caiaphas, who was the, who was the high priest which Jesus was taken to, to the house of Caiaphas when he was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane. And they have never found that name. So they, again, for, for those, for the critics, that's what they used to disprove that it was a myth. So as they broke into this area or in this cave, they're in this cave, they come across a box and the inscription said, Joseph son of Caiaphas. And it was the anchoring proof that the texts and the scriptures are true. And so friends, we have the word of God that will remain. 
We have a lot of things. A lot of things want to give you messages in your life. The world wants to tell you, I'll tell you how to live your life. I'll tell you how to make a difference. I'll tell you what to stand up for. I'll tell you what to march for. I'll tell you what to defend. And, and I'll tell you, and the world will try to get that. They, they want to control the narrative of the church. But friends, the church is controlled by the narrative of the Bible. That's just the way it is. And so as we approach this year, I want to remind you out of Isaiah 40, verse 8, says this, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen? And so we can anchor our life to this. You can have confidence, friends, that when we come to this word, it's not a myth. It's not an idea. It's not a strange collection. There are some strange things in there. It is the message of God to your life. And the fruit of this word will be measured by your faith to engage with it. If you want to, if you want to cleanse your mind with the word or cleanse your mind, you read the word. If you want to ask God to minister to you and speak to you and give you direction in your life, read the word. If you have desires in your own life and you, you wonder, is this God's will for my life? Read the word. And whatever it says, by faith say, Lord, help me to submit to that. And as we do, we're, gonna, we're going to discover the heart of God in a way that I, I believe this year that I, that I never have. Funny enough, as I was preparing this message, I felt like the Lord said this to me. I felt like this is what he said about some of us here today. And as I was thinking about what God was doing, the Holy Spirit said this to me. And I feel like he said it with a little excited, mischievous grin on his face. Because I pray for you often. I pray that you fulfill God's purpose for your life. I pray for you men who long for something to conquer in your life, an adventure, and, and you feel like you've been domesticated I pray that you would get a hold of the Word of God and you wouldn't find your adventure outside of the will of God for your life. You wouldn't find your adrenaline rush in a way that's destructive. I pray for you, women, that you would come to this Word of God and the Word of God would minister peace to you and direction to you and value to you. And, and you'd allow it to alter the course of your life. And so this is what I felt like the Holy Spirit said. The course of some people's lives are going to be completely altered because of their choice to engage in my word. And I really believe that. Some of you, the course of your life is going to be forever altered. That restlessness that you sense you're going to find, actually, where you're to place that. 
It's a sense of living the groundhog day life. You wake up, drink coffee, go to work, come home, eat dinner, watch TV, go to bed, wake up, drink coffee, go to work. No, no, not anymore. God's going to alter some of your lives forever. Or you may find out, actually, there's an incredible purpose of waking up, going to work, coming home. You're not going to see it as just, just every day. You're going to see it as because you're engaged with the Word of God. You're going to have a purpose. I was made for this. I'm doing this to accomplish this because I read it in God's Word. He leads me. He guides me. He shapes me. He's with me. I've got a purpose. I've got a, I've got a mark to make for the glory of Jesus Christ through my life. That's what the engagement's going to be. So my heart is that you would be confident that this is truly the word of God to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your spirit today. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your purposes in our lives. Lord, today I just ask you that you would minister to us, that you would build even though we looked at these very practical things, that that would unwind any lie that we may have. That that would unwind any lie that a young person would have regarding the Word of God. But it's more than just logic. It's also by faith. It's both. And so today, God, we, we wait in expectation to be forever changed by a decision to engage with you. Even starting this week, just engaging five minutes a day in the Word of God. And then God prepare us for March as we all together take steps towards you. God, I pray for your anointing on your people. May you bless them, strengthen them, encourage them this week. May they be confident in who you are. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.